Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is a few months into his first full term in office. Does he have what it takes to turn his country around? And Zambia's politics have become intertwined with attitudes about China and Chinese individuals doing business in Zambia. Is this dynamic playing out in other African countries? Plus, we discuss what a pragmatic U.S. policy towards China and Africa might look like. What steps do we need to take to deliver a more positive message and leverage our strengths at home and abroad? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa started his first full term in office in late May. This is the year in which we will turn the tide on corruption in our public institutions. His party, the ANC, retained its control of parliament, although with a smaller majority, about 57 percent, an election where turnout dipped to its lowest turnout rate since the transition to multiracial democracy in 1994. Joining me to discuss Ramaphosa's agenda and whether he has the right stuff to move his country forward is Kobus Van Staten, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs and co-host of the China and Africa podcast, Eric Olander, also a co-host of the China and Africa podcast, and Yun Soon, a co-director of the East African program at the Simpson Center, co-director of the China program at the Simpson Center, and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Okay, Kobus, you're on the ground. What is the thinking about Ramaphosa right now? He's picked a cabinet. He did his State of the Nation. Is Rama euphoria still a thing in South Africa? What's the, the feeling on the ground? The euphoria has worn off a little bit. Um, I think there's a feeling that he has quite concrete plans and plans to have plans. You know, there's several of these State of the Nation address promised new exciting plans to fix a lot of problems. So I think there's generally a feeling that that he's pro-development, that he is focused, I think, on trying to fix some of the problems of the Zuma administration. But at the same time, I think people are highly aware that the, the African National Congress itself is extremely factionalized. So there are very uh, pro-Zuma people in key positions, and he was forced, you know, because because of his own political weakness in some aspects within the party, to reappoint some of those people. So there's a strong perception that in order to move some of these agendas forward, he would actually have to overcome people within his own party. So he's done, I think, a couple of interesting moves. First of all, around land expropriation without compensation. He's more consistently calling it land reform now. I think he's been really agile the way he's talked about it as a historical wrong that needs to be right, but also talking to the business community. I thought that's been very effective. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then continuing with the State Capture Commission, um, which has helped him weed out some of the Zuma loyalists, although his own people have been caught up uh, in in that conversation, in those in those trials as well, is that the right take? How do you think about uh, his his agility as a politician to manage, you know, both the fissures in his party between the Zuma loyalists and himself, but also these ideological divides? I think he, you know, kind of he he's he's playing a game where he's trying to take some of the language from his opposition on the left. So the land expropriation without compensation became a, a very big theme for the economic freedom fighters. 
which is a party to the left of the ANC, um, who's made some gains um, in, in the election now. I think he is aware that that language tends to scare investors. And he's also aware that a simple non-availability of land isn't the main issue or isn't, isn't the only problem in the land reform process. Um, so I think he made the point to say that it's definitely on the table, you know, satisfying critics to the left, but at the same time saying that it's only one of a, of a set of tools trying to kind of placate, you know, particularly kind of, I think, foreign investors worried about just things like factories being taken away. So, um, you know, so I think, yeah, he definitely is agile. You know, he comes from a, a trade union background and a big business background. So in a way, he, he represents, in his own life, he represents the, the, the core kind of contradiction of the ANC itself, that they're supposed to be speaking for both bosses and workers, um, which has been an increasingly kind of difficult line to walk for the party. Um, and so, yeah, you know, kind of, I, you know, kind of the, the long-winded way of saying, I, th- I think he is agile. Okay, can I put you on the spot really quickly, Kobus? If a year from now... Um, best case scenario, are there a couple things that you could point to that, that Ramaphosa could either realistically do or perhaps would surprise us and we would uh, have to reassess and, and, and give him kudos? I think if he comes up with a comprehensive and realistic plan to do something, anything about the, the national power utility company ESCOM, that would be a major victory. I think also if he if he manages to kick some form of economic growth and some form of in, enhanced foreign investment, that will also be you know a, a major accomplishment. You know, I, I think at the moment the the big problem is that the the South African economy is very flat, and that uh, that exacerbates all of the social issues and all of the kind of simmering other kind of, you know, racial resentments and so on that, that kind of underlies the fact that, that people feel that they're just not getting ahead quickly enough. So any kind of movement in that direction would be counted as a victory. That's fantastic. So we'll watch those issues and we'll, we'll hope to come back to it soon. Shifting to a conversation I've been really excited to have, uh, which is Zambia. Now, Eric and Kobus, you guys talked about this in an episode last year about Zambia and China. And I think there's a a need for a slight update because for me, when I look across the 49 sub-Saharan African countries, there's such an interesting intertwining of Zambian politics and Chinese politics. The Zambian government now has accused the opposition of fueling xenophobic attacks. They arrested the key opposition leader for an anti-China remark. Zambian police on Tuesday questioned opposition leader Hakainde Ichilema for allegedly fueling attacks on Chinese nationals in a sign of growing political tension in the country. They again in February released, uh, arrested another uh, opposition leader who's a rival of President Lungu on suspicions of xenophobia. Uh, you know, it seems that everything, if an opposition leader talks negatively about China, it's now perceived as, as against Lungu and vice versa. And Zambia has a long history that many of our listeners and your listeners may know, going back to um, Michael Sata and his anti-China campaign in 2011. But I, I do wonder if this is a justifiable or a justification for getting rid of your opponents, or is this a harbinger of things that we are going to see as domestic politics and this foreign policy story about China and Chinese investment become intertwined? Eric, I think you probably have some strong views on this. I do. And I think Zambia is really an, an interesting case to watch because in many ways, it's a flashpoint for the Chinese on a lot of different issues. Let's take a couple pieces one by one here. The Chinese do stand in as proxies for Lungu. 
So it can be risky now to criticize the president or the administration. Uh, but up until now, up until about last year, criticizing the Chinese was a free pass because the Chinese never respond. And because of the close proximity between China and elites, not just in Zambia, but in many other places, uh, by criticizing the Chinese, it was the same as criticizing the relationship between the Chinese and the elites. That's now changed. You missed one also, Pielo Lumumba. Yes, he, that's right. He, he sees him as an agitator. He's a, he's a Kenyan kind of uh, very popular on social media and very, very anti-Chinese. And he was supposed to come to Lusaka to, speech, uh, to speak, and he, he denied him a visa as well. The other part of Kenya that's very, very interesting is more for lack of a better word, fake news. This is where that just spread like wildfire about the Chinese on social media. We had the China exporting human meat. Right. Uh, we've had uh, the the case last year, which was very provocative, of uh, four or five Chinese men beating up or killing a young Zambian man, which was never verified. Uh, they weren't, in fact, uh, even Chinese. It was never proven. But again, it just circulates around and it feeds into this, this frustration that people have both with the Chinese and with the Lungu administration. So I, I don't know who Who's best place to answer this? Maybe Yoon, uh, Kobus. But why now and why Zambia? Why is this the leading indicator of this change? And I think we'll talk a little bit about other countries that are replicating this as well. Well, one, it does have something to do with the level of the Chinese engagement in Zambia. And two, we're at an era where the Chinese so-called death trap diplomacy is being uh, examined almost all over the world, and it's not just in Africa. But Africa certainly presents several cases of where the debt owed to the to the Chinese policy banks or to Chinese government uh, institutions are becoming increasingly scrutinized. So this is not just an independent case. We do see that phenomena in other continents and in other countries. Yeah, so Kobus, I know you have some thoughts on other countries. Do you want to kind of give us a glo- more global picture? Yes, you certainly, you know, there's certainly a, a, a discourse that, that you see in, in several African countries. Djibouti is obviously, is what, you know, one of the most obvious examples. There's a, a large kind of a high levels of anxiety about mounting debt in Africa, um, and you know, so so I think it it, it the the idea that that crooked politicians are in bed with China and and running up high debts that is a narrative that that is that's kind of easy to understand and it, and in, in some cases you know kind of like you know it's always a complicated situation but in some cases it's, it's quite close to the truth. So you see versions of this this kind of uh, discussion about debt and connecting the problem of debt with the problem of corruption with the perceptions that the incumbent government is too close to China. That kind of neat overlapping and packaging of those of those different themes. We've seen that a lot in Kenya over the last the last few months. I think in, in the case of Zambia it becomes this kind of supercharged um version of, of a dynamic that we see in lots of other African countries where it becomes very convenient to discredit incumbent governments by characterizing them as being too close to the Chinese. And we're recently seeing this cropping up in Botswana as well. Yeah, but let's be very clear here. There's a very important Zambian agency that's involved here because the Zambians have had a lot of economic malfeasance. Uh, their eurobond interest rates shot up to 19.45% a couple weeks ago because of their decision to take action against certain mines. Uh, they owe significantly more money to the eurobond market than to the Chinese. Uh, so the Chinese are, are a part of the Zambian 
Zambian picture, but they're not the whole picture when it comes to debt. And I find that so much of the conversation about Zambian debt focuses on the Chinese, yeah. but they pay significantly more interest to eurobond holders in Europe than they do to the Chinese. And the Chinese have shown some flexibility in Zambian debt. So I just think it's, I'm not trying to defend the Chinese here, but I'm yeah. trying to put some context here that we don't only talk about the Chinese debt situation. One other final point, the Zambians have been using debt to pay for other debts and to pay for administration. That is not a growth strategy. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, it's a Zambia is a economically depressed region. The Copper Belt has, you know, at least in the earlier part of this decade, really suffered when the global commodities come down. There's a populism that we see in Zambia and uh, instrumentation of xenophobia that worked for SATA. And I think oppositions who are finding it difficult to find ways to sort of compete with Lungu for lots of reasons that we don't have time on this podcast, have used the China narrative. And I do think that we will see it in other places, especially in Southern Africa, regardless of where the level of debt is. If you look at Afrobarometer polling, Southern Africans more than other regions actually have a much higher level of distrust of foreigners. When they're asked questions like, would you want to live next to a foreigner? And now they may be thinking about Nigerians and they may think about Lebanese, but I think China is increasingly part of the mix because Chinese are increasingly part of their, their, their national fabric as citizens or as residents. Well, I agree. I think China is certainly not. Uh, China is one of the external creditors to uh, to many African countries, and in many cases, they may not be the largest. But the sense of vulnerability and the sense of anxiety from the Africans, to a large part, from the way that the Chinese operate, like when they look into the details of the loans or the deals that the Chinese had reached with the African governments, there's very little information on the market. So it is very difficult one to to really determine what is the nature of the Chinese intention and what is the financial and security consequences, implications of these uh, of these type of projects. So the lack of information and the lack of transparency in particular fuels into this anxiety because people simply do not understand or they can only speculate the worst intention or the worst case scenario from the Chinese projects. There's also an aspect where there's a feeling that, uh, that the Chinese involvement, the Chinese debt and, and Chinese migration to, to Africa all of those feel like new things, I think, for Africa, whereas, you know, kind of being indebted to, to Europe or to Western institutions and having Europeans and, you know, kind of other kinds of foreigners around in Africa, those have been naturalized to a certain extent. In the case of China, it's easy to, to, to portray this as a new crazy kind of thing that people are dealing with, um, you know, which, which makes it easier to kind of to make a kind of a China threat narrative out of it as well. I think that's exactly right. And the other thing is that we're more likely to see this in partial democracies and democracies where there is some political competition, even if it's not full political competition, and when there's still plurality, there's still an ability to talk to the media on social media. So I think Kenya, you mentioned earlier, Kobus, South Africa is an example. We're starting to seeing some of this. The opposition in Ghana has talked about this. In fact, earlier last year, you know, reached out to the IMF and said they shouldn't give this deal to Ghana because of the China angle. So I think we'll see this become more infused in local politics, regardless of what the global conversation is. So uh, something to, to keep, keep your eye out for as this becomes an emerging trend.
All right, I want to move to our main topic, and this is our second uh, podcast mashup that we have done here at Into Africa, and I couldn't be more honored to be talking with Eric and Kobus. I'm a devoted listener to uh, your guys' podcast, and uh, my only regret is that it took me too long to discover the show, so I didn't hear the episode that Yoon was in. All 400 episodes are online, oh. so what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> uh, if time is uh, our most precious commodity, Eric. I want to focus us on something that I spend almost all my time interacting with the U.S. policymakers and the community here in D.C. is what is actually a pragmatic approach that we can have? How do we protect advanced U.S. interests at the same time? Think about African prosperity. Think about African sovereignty and African peace. Right now, it's there's so much fire breathing on China in Washington, D.C., and there's a lack of clarity, in my view, about what we should even be countering. I said this when Yun and I testified late last year. It seems to be, whether it's explicit or not, everything. And a good strategist knows that when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. So I thought we could talk a little bit about what are the things that the U.S. should actually be focused on? Because I think all of us agree that China is doing a lot of things that Africans actually want and need and that the U.S. isn't going to do. But I think we can also talk about the things that China is doing that may undermine either African interest or I work at a think tank based in the United States. I'm a former U.S. government employee. I think a lot about the U.S. interest as well. So the first question probably is, you know, what are the things that we should really be worried about and thinking about? And what are the things that actually are, are quite fine what they're doing and may either not affect U.S. interest or actually may benefit them? Well, Jeff, you're absolutely right that there is, uh, well, without discrimination here in Washington, what China does in Africa is regarded as evil, as hostile, and as undermining U.S. national interest. Well, on the other hand, from the African perspective, what the Chinese have delivered to the African continents have been highly regarded and highly welcomed. And so when American officials or the American policy analysts tell the uh, the Africans that you should be more careful about the Chinese investment or the Chinese infrastructure projects, the reactions that we get is, uh, so what are you offering? Right. What right. Are the, so what are you offering as the, as the alternative? And the fact is that we have been calling for U.S. to pay more attention to Africa, to allocate more policy resources to Africa. But the fact simply is that China is engaging Africa at a different level, at a whole different scale that the U.S. may not be able to, to compete with. But I think that reality is very difficult for uh, for, for a lot of people to, to accept. So the attention instead has been focused on what China is doing wrong in Africa and how we can work with Africans to prevent the wrongdoings of the of the Chinese to, to but expand. Not, but they're not specific about what those things are. I mean, or you can't counter everything that China does, especially when you're not resourcing it, and it's not advisable, it's counterproductive. So I don't know, like, when we did that testimony, I talked about ports and telecom. I think it's a very complicated conversation. I'm happy to get into it. I've thought about soft power a lot, but at least try to put on the table a couple of things that isn't as broad as where we are. I don't know, Eric, you've been in Washington for the last week. What do you think? I mean, uh, so I've been here all week and talking to mostly government stakeholders. And there's two observations I'm taking away with. Number one, people here in Washington are much more focused on the internal workings of Washington and trying to do things within the bureaucracy here. They're not focused on an outward strategy for Africa as much. That needs to change. We got to get people focused on Africa and not on how to get things through the bureaucracy. Number two, those, those are related, unfortunately. They are related, but that is the reality of, of politics in Washington today, not just in Africa, but in a lot of different sectors. And it's dysfunctional and it hurts us in the long run. 
Number two, and this is a message that I've delivered to a number of different stakeholders, shut up about China. Stop talking about China, really. Because when you define yourself against your competition, you're not defining about yourself what you are for. So basically, IDFC, the International Development Finance Corporation, is the We Are Not China Development Finance Corporation. Our policy, Assistant Secretary Naj, was out there just this week on the BBC saying how bad and awful everything that China's doing. The problem with that is we just don't know what the United States is for. We know what they're against. We know that they don't think China's 5G is any good. We know that they don't think that Chinese infrastructure is any good. And by the way, Assistant Secretary Nash reminded us all again that he's not going to bail out African countries in the event of a debt problem. Kobus, do you agree with Eric? Does the United States need to stop talking about China? Um, I Yes, I, I think I, I would probably put it slightly differently in, in <laughs> the sense that I was also actually recently in, in Washington. I had very kind of similar conversations that Eric has been having. Um, and the the way that I put it to people um, in rooms in, in D.C. was that you have to take into account where Africa is. And that means that you have to also take into account what that, that Africa is coming from, uh, from an experience of pervasive systemic underdevelopment that is unimaginable in, in a first world developed context. You know, the U.S. Has a, hasn't had that kind of experience, I think, in living memory outside of extremely kind of uh, extreme kind of examples. China, it brings a, a very unique story to, China, to Africa, which is we used to be as poor as you are, and now we are unimaginably rich. And that's powerful. Within, yeah, that's very powerful. One or two generations. That story counts for more than any kind of fear-mongering about Huawei, any kind of like talking about sovereignty or ports or whatever. You know, in order to have a, an impact on the level of that story, you need to take really take African development seriously and really take into account how hungry Africa is for development. And also, I think, be realistic that we, we are now talking about the continent with, with a very large number of extremely fast-growing economies, you know. So I think Africa is, is gaining some confidence and they feel they have something to offer. And so only speaking about Africa in terms of Chinese influence or whether Africa is going with the U.S. or going with China and essentially leaving Africa out of its own story – is a fatal strategy. That's just not going to work. He's saying the same thing. I'm saying he's just saying it nicer and more articulate. So okay. that, that we are on the same page. <laughs> uh, we're really glad that you're here then, Kobus. <laughs> you know, I I absolutely agree with you. And one of the things that I, I have been saying to the U.S. government and to anyone who wants to talk about it is it's not just that Africa needs roads. African countries, African businesses, but U.S. businesses need roads, right? We need, if we want to sell our products to Africans, we need ports that work and we need roads that work. And the truth is, with a couple of exceptions, that's not really what American companies do. We're not in the top 10 for infra- for road construction. Um, we do some ports. We did a port, two ports under the MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, but we don't do 46 ports. And I've started to use this line, no one's using it, but I like it, which is we need to have this approach that's like improv, yes and. 
yes, take the Chinese money. You need to do those projects. And we're happy to help you structure the deals in ways that make sense for you, particularly if we're not competing on the bid, because we think those roads are important. We think those ports are important. We want to make sure that it's it's a good deal for you with good local content, that you can negotiate uh, uh, you know, the right kinds of financing terms, that you can make sure that it's not environmentally degraded. And it doesn't have to be necessarily us. We can also put that investments in the World Bank or a multilateral institution. But we can work on the things that we are really good at. And there's a host of things from financing to services. And we're happy to help and be a partner to the Africans so they can get the best deals from the Chinese. It has a hard time resonating here right now because we are, you know, the idea of doing anything that could actually support or help or at least not counter China isn't is very distasteful. I think it's a much more of a, a winning strategy with the Africans. I think the last comment that I want to make on this is the fact that I believe that since Prosper Africa was announced in Maputo a few weeks ago, that an hourglass tipped. And I think African stakeholders are going to be looking at the United States and saying, if I don't see something material and tangible out of this policy within 12 to 18 months, I think they're done with the United States. Because it's not just now, it's not just China that's in that's in Africa very the ja- you're going to the TCAD summit, the Japanese are there, the Turks are there, the Russians just had a summit, the French have a summit, the Indians had a summit. So by us focusing so much on the Chinese, we're missing the bigger picture that this is a very competitive landscape. And if the United States literally is not showing up, we couldn't muster a cabinet secretary, we couldn't muster Ben Carson, we couldn't muster anybody to go to Maputo. So you got to show up. And other people are showing up. Macron was there. She goes. Modi was there. So showing up and really seeing a material uh, you know, transition from a policy to something practical and tangible that people can touch and feel on the ground, that to me is going to be something very important to watch in the next year. Yun, has an hourglass been flipped over? Uh, well, I see what Eric is saying, <laughs> and I agree that the United States has been absent, um, has been absent in many of these aspects. And I think African co- countries and African governments also have a certain level of frustration with uh, with U.S. rhetoric, but without the real action. But one fundamental difference here is that while China has a very state-dominated approach, so China has has the ability to coordinate among policy banks, among state-owned enterprises, and even motivate the private sector people to go into Africa in a very coordinated manner. And when the Chinese policy bank and the government is willing to put money on the table in order to induce these actors to go to Africa, it has been extremely effective. But for the United States, that's simply not the U.S. approach to ask the state to dominate almost or to engineer an engagement with Africa. So they got to come up with a different approach then. I mean, doing nothing can't be the answer. And just complaining about the Chinese have all the advantages because they've got a policy bank tied in with a company, tied in with the political structure. Okay, that's the way they do it. We do it differently. But what are we going to do? Well, you know, kind of one one thing I could probably suggest is that you know, you know, obviously, in the, in the okay, two things. In the first place, I, I think I think if you speak to any African policymaker, what they're going to say is we don't want either or; we want all, all of these actors. We Both want involved, totally. Right? They, they, they always they always talk about how how Western and and Chinese entities should be working together, or how there's different they have different strengths and they bring different things to the table, and they want they want as much as possible, as many investors and as many partners as possible. I think one of the things that the, the West and the U.S. brings to the table is a very strong regulatory framework, and, 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 you know, with, which brings with it kind of high levels of transparency. 
So I think there's one very simple thing to do. Africa, one, the issue that Africa has been pushing so hard over so many years at the G20 is the issue of illicit financial flows. Um, if you think about illicit financial flows, one tends to immediately think about corruption, government corruption. And that is a part of it, but it's a small part of it. You know, so the corruption makes up about 2 to $3 billion per year of, of money lost out of Africa. Africa loses $50 billion per year simply because foreign companies, of which Western companies make up a large number, simply don't pay taxes. You know, they, they simply, you know, they, they use tax havens, they use tax avoidance, all of these different ways to simply, you know, kind of essentially cheat Africa out of uh, out of tax money. So, you know, for example, working, you know, working with African governments and, and multilateral organizations to try and find some kind of way of compelling Western companies to pay some of the tax that they owe African companies, that already is a massive step, for example. What about democracy and governance? I truly believe that it's not just a set of principles, it's also a set of tools. And we have seen in case after case, African journalists expose Mombasa port clause, right? I mean, this is your point, Kobus, about transparency, or at least part of the point. Uh, we, we saw the court turn over the coal uh, in Lamu decision. And Eric, you may want to add uh, what the, the Chinese said in response to that, which is really interesting. Um, but as we've downplayed our democracy and government's promotion, I actually think we've lost a really important tool because I don't think the U.S. government should be criticizing the Chinese. I just think it's a really difficult position for us. It smacks of you know, neo-imperialism. But if an African wants to criticize the, what the Chinese are doing, like I think that that's fine. And the U.S. can support that. And we have to be comfortable that they're going to be critis- critical of us. But I want, I want a vibrant conversation about Africa's foreign relations. And I think the U.S. could be investing in creating a space where that's possible, creating a space where legislators um, have hearings over these issues, making sure that investments are right, making sure that military relationships are transparent. And I think judiciaries are critically important to make sure that the deals aren't corrupt, that if there is a dispute, that it can actually adjudicate it. So there's a lot of investments that we could be doing that in this day and age, we think is sort of, you know, namby-pamby and just, you know, good moralistic and altruistic. But the truth is, it's actually part of our core agenda uh, in globally is to create a space where people can compete in a free and fair way and, and people can speak out uh, about their views about foreign relationships and expose what's not working. I don't know, Yun, does that, does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. There's one problem, which is the demand has to come from Africa. We have the knowledge, USAID has capacity building programs, has technical assistance to provide when there is a demand for that. 68% of Africans support democracy and governance. While the rest of the world is in recession, the Africans, you know, remain, remain determined and supportive of democracy. Yeah, that support has not translated into a uh, vigorous environment against corruption, which is Say, say that. Well, there's there's supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. So U.S. supplies the knowledge as for how to how to better defend 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 the system, how to better safeguard the sovereignty and the financial sustainability sustainability. But the African governments need to be one needs to be the ones who ask for those those knowledge. There needs to be a political 
will. Unfortunately, in this case of uh, how to better understand the implications of the Chinese projects, I don't see that kind of demand coming out of Africa for the United States to tell them that, well, is this project going to have a long-term financial negative consequences for your national economy? African governments or African publics? Well, that goes to the civil society. If we want to create that demand, we need to invigorate, we need to empower the civil society, empower the journalists to almost create this type of demand. Okay, good. You agree with me then. I agree with you. (laughs) Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I mean, Kobus makes this point on our show quite a bit. That's probably where I got it. Well, but it's this idea that I'm not so sure that the United States is actually very well positioned to be talking about democracy anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's be very honest right yeah. now. We have a president who has his family members employed, we ha- who has not divorced himself from his businesses, who now embraced al-Sisi, was a bear hug at the White House, who just crossed over into Kim Jong, you know, into North Korea, right. um, who has denigrated his relationships with democracies, and at the same time, and this is the point that Kobus brings up, the treatment of African Americans in this country is something that is very, very resonant and sensitive. Yeah. And all those YouTube videos of African American men being shot or being illegally detained by police is something that resonates in African social media. No, absolutely. And so when the United States comes and talks about transparency and good governance and policing and civil society, I have a feeling it's a bunch of privileged white people who are coming over from Yale, Princeton, Harvard, who are detached, no offense, I mean, please, to I, the audience. I, I went to but Yale, my point but that's is fine. that they're detached from the everyday realities on the ground that affect African Americans that are playing very, very prominently in social media. So the United States comes with this rhetoric, and then people see the reality on social media. I think it's hard for people to understand where are we coming from. I have a slight counter. When I talk to Africans, uh, in, and now in this capacity, um, I, I often, when we talk about democracy, I say that we don't have the answers, all, all of the answers. Like we are working through a national conversation. Like we have significant challenges about but our, our institutions don't norms. say that. I know, but I'm just saying okay. that I have found, particularly with some Africans, actually a lot of South Africans, that that is actually a much more honest approach than saying, because I think there was a lot of resentment when the U.S. would come and say, you know, prior to this administration and say, like, democracy and look at us and we're perfect and all of this stuff. I think we're in a much better place to say, these are super hard issues. We're working on it. You can see that we're struggling through these issues and we're not in a better place or a worse place than you. We're all collectively, like, working on how to create and protect societies uh, so that there's pluralism and that there's these democratic norms. We have kids in cages right now. We, we have also have things. media that's exposing it. No, no, there's a lot of good, well, you're, you're right, but we have kids in cages. And that's a hard thing to get past in the international media and the optics of it all. So we're talking, and not getting due process, by the way, either. And lest I remind you, Guantanamo Bay, lack of due process is still there. I'm not trying to harp on the U.S. Please don't misunderstand me, even though I sound like it. I'm trying to say that a lot of people are looking at this, and we pretend as if they're not paying attention. Kobus, what do you think? The, the strength and the liability of, of the U.S. system is that it's so transparent, you know. And I think in, in a lot of ways, the incredible dynamism of the U.S. political system and the way that it keeps producing new kinds of political meaning and that, you know, that, that it, it keeps questioning and bringing, you know, um, using things like, like kind of identity to, you know, to, to create new rights. 
um, you know, all of that I think is in lots of ways very inspiring for the whole world and, and I think for, for Africa particularly. You know, so, for example, the LGBT community in Africa, you know, extremely in, influenced by the U.S., you know, and, and, and the way that, that, that U.S. LGBT plus people define themselves and talk about their rights, talk about their identities, is very, very, you know, resonates very strongly in Africa. But because the system is so transparent, of course, all of all of the problems that Eric um, have been mentioning, they're glaring. You know, they're, they're very easy to see. But but the openness of the system itself has value. And you know, I, I think, however, that that what is needed is is a stronger kind of commitment by the U.S. to the world. I think that's well said. So we're going to do like a quick lightning round under one minute. I'm going to try to summarize some of the points that I thought were really interesting about a pragmatic approach towards uh, China, Africa. And then uh, you and Eric and Kobus will add one or two, you know, phrases, not sentences. Uh, One was Eric's point. Stop talking about China. Let's define our policy, not in opposition to China, but what we stand for. I think related to that is focus on our strengths when it comes to economic engagement. Three work with Africans to make sure that they get the best deals when they're dealing with not just the Chinese, but other partners. We can be a neutral arbiter. That's a better position for us to be in. Focus on transparency, whether that's anti-corruption or good governance or, or bolstering civil society. And then this point that Cobus made, which is fantastic, which is recommit to multilateralism. Two things. One, we have to show up. We got to be present. Relationships are important in Africa and everywhere around the world. And two, I want us to have a positive policy, a positive vision. The world wants an optimistic America. I like that. Kobus, final word for you. Any other things we're missing on our pragmatic approach? I would say stop thinking about Africa as a set of problems to be solved and start thinking about it as the world's biggest emerging market. We could not end on a more perfect note. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.